0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Arne Jörgensen.
1: I'm Dolly Jörgensen.
0: And today we have with us uh, Alexander Etkind, who's Professor of History of Russia-Europe Relations at the European University Institute uh, in Italy. And he will talk about his new book, Nature's Evil, A Cultural History of Natural Resources, which came out with Wiley in 2021. So we'll just leave it over to you.
2: Well, thanks a lot for organizing all this and thank, thank you everyone for spending this, uh, this hour with uh, us. So I, I will introduce my book very, very briefly uh, and then I, I will be very open to your questions and uh, actually will be very eager to, to hear your questions and comments. So this is a book that combines various things, environmental history, economic history, and quite a bit of cultural and intellectual history. And typically for a history book, uh, it focuses not on people, but on those things on the boundary between nature and culture that we call raw materials. The leading characters, protagonists in this book are Pete and Hemp sugar and ore, cotton and oil, and other raw materials. They are at once elements of nature, components of the economy, and engines of culture. Civilized life is built out of these materials. Their specific characteristics explain the conduct and experience of societies through history. This is one of my main uh, arguments. And another argument is that the state has a special relationship with raw materials. Uh, In many cases, we see that the state bypasses the people, engaging raw materials in a kind of interesting uh, alliance uh, with the statehood, the institutions of the state. someone we don't know who was this person but i prefer he, i prefer to think he was an alchemist said the devil is in the details one political scientist added with irony then let's avoid the details so that we will avoid the devil this is not what my book does it is actually full of details some of them quite vicious because it's about, about political evil if not demonic, Uh, from the Babylonian clay to the alchemic metals, to the contemporary petrostates. I'm zooming on the material stuff that supported human life and that created in interaction with human labor, uh, various historical institutions. Social history always always aspires to construct history from below. You probably know this kind of famous slogan, history from below. But it usually ignored the very lowest level, raw materials. You cannot go lower than, say, a a coal mine. The lowest level for the history from below are natural resources endowed with their own life? Each and every one of those of these resources makes a rich and fascinating subject for historical study. This is a subject full of details. Probably the most controversial concept here is agency. I indeed I'm trying to say that. Things like coal and oil and grain and timber, they have their own agency. In humanities, we keep repeating this word, agency, as a kind of mantra, but we always attribute it to humans. What I'm trying to build up is a natural history of of agency. Agency is always partial, there is no such thing as full agents, no single agent is completely autonomous. Neither man, nor nature, nor a sovereign ruler. So like, I, I, I'm an agent right now, but those who organize this event, those who are listening to me, we all agents to various extents, and the process is created in this interaction. No single agent is completely autonomous. In my book, a sack of grain, a bale of cotton, a barrel of oil, they all have their agency. The history of resources is not a reductive explanation of human experience. On the contrary, I wish to learn how to find partners in a grain of wheat, a fiber of hemp, or a lump of coal. One Roman emperor Vespasian famously said, that money do not stink. His patient was one who, if you remember, who taxed Latrines. Uh, it may well be that silver sesterces did not stink, even though they, were, they, they came from these taxes. But if you smell a dollar bill, or a Russian ruble close up, as if you were smelling a flower, you will catch a whiff of oil from both. Money changes, think of money as if it were a universal equivalent. Rulers rely on the qualitative differences between commodities. Different natural resources have different political characteristics. And this is my argument. So my question is not which comes first, resources or institutions. The relations between them are not cause and effect, but are based on cohabitation, even symbiosis. The non-human agents of history, natural resources, interact with working, suffering, hopeful, or disillusioned human beings. Hardness in nature, people endow natural phenomena with independent agency, and deprive themselves of this agency. In specific chapters of my book, I discern elective affinities between sugarcane and British mercantilism, between hemp and Russian feudalism, between oil and globalization. Every primary commodity shapes a social institution, and each of them are different. Different natural resources have different political qualities and generate different forms of reflection. Addressing a huge variety of natural resources, I explore the economic, cultural, and political lives from from below, as I say, from the bottom up, from the earth to the state. In my book, there are specific chapters on grain, timber, fibers, metals, intoxicants, and, of course, on energy, on peat, coal, and oil. Each chapter takes four steps in this upward movement from the earth to the state. First, I look at the inherent characteristics of the raw material. And uh, these are physical, chemical, geological, geographic characteristics, biological sometimes characteristics they belong to nature really and without understanding these natural qualities we do not understand the rest second we learn about the methods of processing it which define the specifics of the labor required and about the ways of thinking about those commodities Third, I switch attention to the institutions which organize labour on a specific commodity, institutions that derive income from this particular kind of raw material. And fourth and fourth, we engage with the political features of the state that depends on the given resource. As I argue, material history and intellectual history are both interwoven with moral history. The origins of the state, of revolutions, of global warming are connected to political evil, its variety, origins, and changes. Political evil entails violence, economic inequality, and the suppression of freedom. This is not new. What is new is the realization that in our world, ecological damage has also become a part of political evil. Evil has its roots in nature, and nature also limits it. This is a story of climate crisis in one sentence. But the choice is ours. We're making evil here now. and we're making good, and uh, the choice is ours, and that was always the case. The world is the unit of human beings and nature. And since we have failed to change the world, as some philosophers were begging us to do, now is the moment to understand how it works. This is, I think, is the task for a new enlightenment. All right, I'm, I'm eager to uh, end my, my introduction on this.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, and uh, so I was thinking about, yeah, this, the, the use in your title, so nature's evil. And then in your comments there, you talked about how political evil exists. So evil being then about inequality. And so those inequalities and violence are built on nature. So what I'm wondering in making it a a possessive, right, nature's evil, Uh, what's the move there? Uh, Is it, are you making nature just an agent of that evilness? Are you ascribing some kind of inherent characteristic? To nature, you know. In other words, I guess, is it inherently evil, or do people just make it do evil things?
2: <laughs> well, this uh, title uh, is aimed to have double meaning. So, nature is evil. Uh, or nature is angry. Nature is vicious. Uh, and then, uh, nature of evil. Um, but uh, uh, of course, evil is you know evil is uh, connected to people and only to, to people uh, you know uh, people suffer, people uh, cause evil, people experience suffering, etc. So viol- violence and uh, inequality and suppression of freedom, they are uh, uh, ha- happen- this all happens to human. But my, uh, but, but that's you know we, we all know it from from high school probably. Uh, I'm trying to make a step a little bit farther below, and I think that's a deeper understanding of that. Uh, say social inequality, it's clearly connected to the to to to, to trade to uh, the movement of commodities from one place to another, to accumulating wealth due to this movement. Um, How does it happen? Why does it happen? Uh, You know, we we know the answers that Adam Smith and some other classics gave to us. My answer is that, It, it happens because of the natural heterogeneity uh, uh, of, of space, because it happens because of geographic, because of the very simple fact that there are valuable things that exist in one place and they are not there in another place. And th- this is like f- f- facts of, Biology, if we're talking about fish, about cod or sables. Facts fact of geology, if we're talking about gold or oil. Facts of geography, etc. Um, the, these are basic for the development of trade, capitalism, inequality, colonization, violence, and evil. That's the logic of my book.
1: Well, this speaks directly, I think, to Micah's question uh, she was asking in the chat um, because she she started saying, thanks for the fantastic talk. I love how you've woven together the microscopic detail and the large scale. So you're making both really small arguments about a specific commodity um, and natural resource and then making a really large scale argument, uh, zooming in and zooming out. So she says, I'm a Canadian. So of course she has to ask you about the staples thesis which was offered for a long time as an explanation for the shape of her nation, Canada. So in other words, what staples you have and where you get them from are determined the character of Canada. And so there's been, she notes, generations of debate among Canadian historians as to whether or not this is, you know, true. So she wants to know, would you say your work then is a a defense of that kind of staples thesis? might it be some kind of staples thesis for the world rather than just for a one given nation so how do you bridge across nations you know is this a transnational history then in that sense so a a staples thesis updated for the climate crisis etc so if you have some comments there
2: that would be a good reading of my book, and I I, uh, I, I would say that it is indeed a development, not so much a defense, but a development of the staple thesis uh, as it was uh, uh, produced by the Canadian sociologist Innes. I think he was Harold Innes. And uh, um, Canada, of course, is an interesting country because I'm, I'm a Russian historian. So Canada and Russia they, they, they that's a great uh, comparison to two great comparis- comparative cases, and there are similarities and differences. you know, there was this period of fur as a staple. But uh, this fur was different in Russia. That was uh, squirrel, and the later sable in Canada. That was be- beaver. So some some of similarities and differences they follow directly from the differences be- between these uh, fur animals. Uh, but in, in in this way, I very strong. I point that it's that um, the the different beak. Be- uh, eras or epochs of Canadian history were were connected to particular staples. So fur, timber, electricity, oil. Uh, And uh, I'm applying this uh, staple thesis first to Russia and then, as you uh, said, to, 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 to the world. Indeed, it is a staple thesis. Apply, you know, applied and adjusted by uh climate, cl- climate crisis. Yes, I, I'm trying to. I, I was trying to write a global history, a sort of a transnational history, but uh, you know, any, any and every detail is belongs to a particular national context. So, while we're while, while I'm comparing different details, uh, I'm, I'm trying to. To, to produce this kind of synthesis of national and transnational.
1: Well, thinking about that, this, this tension between, you know, uh, writing a global history, trying to write a global history and using very specific cases, Gerard asked, you know, can you tell us how you chose which specific raw materials, which specific natural resources you wrote the case studies of in in the book? So. I mean, obviously, there there are big things, I guess, that you had named big concerns. Was there something analytically driving that made you pick those over other potential commodities? So let's say, uh, coffee, as a commodity, I didn't hear that listed, or don't remember it listed. So, so how did how did you come to your list?
2: Coffee is there. There is a big chapter on what's called soft drugs or intoxicants, and it includes sugar, which is a big thing, of course, in this history, and uh, tab- tobacco, chocolate, uh, coffee, and opium. Um, I do. I there. There is uh, so what I really skipped. Uh, are, these are two great resources, air and water. There is no chapter about air, there is no chapter about water. That would probably double double the volume of my book if I talked about that. But also I'm trying to say that they are like primary resources, life is just absolutely impossible without that human life. Uh, While, uh, but, but basically I start from food, I start from grain. There is not so much in my book about say bananas or particular kinds of. um, There there is quite a lot about cereals, but not so much about. uh, uh, There is a section about meat and milk, but of course I don't I don't aspire to that. I gave like an even coverage of different resources. That's a huge, you know, enormous field, but I wouldn't also say that I have an analytical idea why did I choose to focus on one and sort of skip another one. What I was trying to produce is a kind of um, reasonable systematics of them. Say a chapter of fiber, it sort of includes all, you know, all, all, all of that. sail so like cleaning, hemp, uh, cotton, and synthetic fibers. So, th- So this is what I was trying to do. And the same goes to metals, for instance, which is another huge subject.
0: So I would like to ask a bit about the underlying theoretical framework you use and also you know, what could be your contribution there. Because as I hear, you, you mentioned uh, agency and you talk a lot about materials. Uh, and you know that resonates with a lot of the development in environmental humanities in, in recent year and also with uh, new materialism. So, and there's not too many historians, I think, who have systematically worked with that. I mean, Tim LeCain, uh, I would say, is the, the one who's done this in the most explicit way with uh, the matter of history. No uh, so, so, could you say a little bit more about how, you know, what your approach is there and what you see as your contribution also to, to this area?
2: It's a bit eclectic, I think, but I, I do refer to new materialism quite a lot. And that's a kind of a big sort of uh, umbrella uh, field for for me. Also, I'm 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 referring with much respect to Bruno Latour uh, uh, and his ideas about about nature and agency. And, uh, but another thing that was really kind of stimulating for me from the start is the idea of oil course and i generalize it into into resource course and that comes actually from economic history and particular kind of economic history and obviously very very important for 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 a country such as russia so this kind of dependency on Export of of, of a natural resource and how this it could be sugar, it could be uh, it could be fur, it could be uh, wool, uh, it could be oil, and what kind of institutions uh, uh, are were shaped by this particular dependencies? And once again, this dependency is a universal term, but the character of this dependency was. Was connected, was dependent on a particular on the natural characteristics of particular resource. So, you know, dependence on was very different from dependence on oil. And uh, um, therefore, uh, a scholar that really t- taught me a lot uh, about this kind of political dependencies and their connection to natural materials was Timothy Mitchell. Uh, that's his book, Carbon Democracy, in which he compares precisely uh, oil and coal uh, in terms of the uh, social institutions and even ideologies that flow from this, from, from this materials.
0: so this framework then on understanding the dependency on particular types of natural resources and how they have shaped states institutions and basically our way of being you know what can that you think offer to the ongoing debate about green transitions you know we are trying to you know quit our dependency on particular things shifting into others is there hope
2: Uh oh I I I want to I, I want to see hope indeed and uh, um, what, what one um le- lesson from, uh, from from this area is that the the the, the, the 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 those materials are more expensive, more desirable, create more dependency that are rare and distant and oil of course is a, a great um, example of that so all this geopolitics of oil is just rooted in the fact that oil is for some reason it is and i'd like coal it's very distant it could be you know located in in the marshes or in the deserts or in the oceans but it was also on the edges of great empires and very far from the population centers of the modern civilization. So uh, since we have to get rid of oil and turn to some renewables, renewables will will, and already have very different geographical characteristics. Renewable energy is decentralized. We we could have these solar panels, Windmills and some other uh, uh, micro turbines, almost everywhere in the world, everywhere where people live. So this decentralization of energy flows is the the source of hope. But of course, there is a downside to that. That all these above mentioned um, devices would need. Uh, uh rare metals and other you know things that will be also very distant located, allocated rare would entail transportation costs uh fights and wars for the size of these metals. so uh here here's a trade-off will these rare metals produce as much of, of political evil as oil and gas have produced less or more we will see
1: a very relevant um questions and debates to think about especially as we're talking here from Norway um and it as an oil nation today um, and so the ways in which our uh, politics and systems are dependent upon that oil money um so it's it's always a really (laughs) immediate (laughs) and relevant uh, question for us here. Um, Anna had a question in uh, the chat about understanding of agency. So you you talked about agency and the agency of the materials of these raw materials that become natural resources, right? So they're a raw material, they exist, but they become seen as natural resources. And so she says, the characteristics of materials are unveiled or created in relation to particular technologies of knowledge production, as well as then how they're used. So that conversion from raw material to natural resource. And um, so how do you understand that, that unveiling or producing aspect in relation to its agency, the agency of the materiality?
2: That's the more, most interesting part of uh, you know of of, uh, of of a history of any given resource. So how how people created this technology, how did, how did so think about silk and the silk ones, for instance, or think about um, uh, cotton? Uh, technologies are so different. Uh, they they are all uh, uh, rooted in in uh, biology and geography of this particular you know. Uh, Creatures, plants, or animals—in this case—but they are so different, and people had to create you know all these devices and uh, uh, ways of understanding and uh, ways of thinking. So I, the, 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 he, here we really go to from from environmental history to to intellectual history and the history of technology and history of labor, um, uh, and then of course. Uh, this is so, so this is uh, this chain from the earth, as i put it from the earth to the state from say from the mine to 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 as a natural source but then to commodities that have would be created due to this energy you know, uh, uh due to steam engines and things like that so uh so from from uh say a cotton plantation to uh to the sparks of cotton then to the finished goods such as you know such, such as the shirt that i'm wearing right now uh we are all still you know everything that we have my t- table um uh clothing and the, even the computer that we're using they are made in the final account of certain raw raw materials uh you, you, you says, asked about uh, norway that's a fascinating story of course you know this the, the this particular and practically speaking a unique way in in which your country is um uh, extracting uh Oil and gas, selling it so that it will be burned, burn somewhere else, but, and not using the money, not using the profits that would be created. So it's locking the profits, but still, uh, you know, allowing uh, emissions to happen somewhere else. While of course uh, our atmosphere was was shared, we share the earth, we share, you know. With we share, we share Gaia and um, the fact that you sort of you 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 found, you, you created you invented a way to to uh, escape oil curse by looking the money uh, still you know raises the question why 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 are you doing it at all wouldn't it be better if you just left that oil. Uh, all its place forever.
1: Absolutely. Um, and in, in in that discussion of, yeah, these technologies that, that convert, if you will, this raw material into labor, Vitalia um, had an interesting question, which is related to the categorization of these natural resources then, because you have some that have to be produced in collaboration with uh, human care and and labor to even have them exist at all. So grains are a good example of this, right? Uh, The wild grains themselves that were available to us tens of thousands of years ago would not be able to feed people as they're fed today. So there's been a lot of care in trying to uh, modify them, right, domesticate them to do particular things that we want done. Is that, do you see that as radically different than a resource that is more just there, like a coal seam, um, that doesn't require domestication to exist, although it does require labor to extract?
2: Any 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 raw material requires you know technology, and uh, you know most most of them are require quite, quite soph- sophisticated ones. Even this, those most primitive cereals, I am starting with this uh, uh, grain hypothesis by formulated by James Scott, which basically says that. Uh, uh cereals the yes they were domesticated of course but um but there the, the, the is much more to that so this fantastic fact that all plants on the field they ripe simul- simultaneously and so that the crop could be just cut from the whole fields so that, like every plant has a biological clock uh uh Shaped or kind of abroad by this domestication, so, but it is not for the for, this is not for the domus, this is for the state. So that was the tax inspector who was interested in this collection, simultaneous collection of the from, of grain from the whole field, not a peasant because a peasant could obviously just go to the field several times, you know, and 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 cut it, you know, by by need. A tax inspector needs it uh, at all at once. Uh, for his convenience so um these technologies um they um they, they they have many levels you know uh one 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 level of this technology is for like for systems agriculture for instance, you were talking about grain and entirely different level of technology and uh, artificial selection uh uh targets the, uh, or caters like, uh, the needs of uh, biggest institutions such as the state.
1: So do they have different types of agency then, the grain versus coal, or are they the same kind of agency inherent in the material as you see it?
2: As I said, yeah, here, there are all these different uh, details that are hugely important. For instance, uh, cereals could develop this internal clocks, internal watches in every plant, but uh, say uh, lentils could not, or, or or beans. They they have you know potentially as many calories, and uh, and they could uh, be uh, dried and stored and transported. But this is why why, why humans uh, you know in on every continent preferred cereals to to um, to I think it, to tubes, tube, tubes, I think it's called so these vegetables like potatoes or to uh, things like beans, because, because of this um, uh, ability to ripe in the same time. So, this is what I call by agency. So, it's not that, since, of course, this agency is or uh, was revealed only in interaction with humans who produce this artificial selection through, through millennia. But there is this sort of specificity of nature, uh, which, which is hugely important. And unless we understand that, we, we cannot understand agricultural societies or political states.
1: So, Arsena had a question here that I think leads well off of that political state um, comment, and that, um, so in The Dawn of Everything, David Graeber and David Wengrow made an interesting point about the link between resource production, so agriculture, and social arrangements had to do with the loss of three freedoms the freedom to move away from oppression the freedom to disobey orders and the freedom to invent new ways of making society so in that argument um, the authors claimed that for millennia different cultures and populations practiced agriculture um, without inevitably yielding to oppressive structures so your book seems to make similar examples of decentralized And relatively non coercive production of some materials like silkworms, you mentioned um, in Italy, or hemp in northwestern Russia. But because we require a mass production of raw materials in today's globalized society, particularly, right? So many people, um, is it, I guess, kind of inevitable? that you're going to end up with oppressive systems? Or are there possibilities to decouple that mass usage of natural resources from the oppressive social structures? So is there something about our moment and how big and massive it is that inevitably leads to oppression? Or are there alternatives?
2: Yeah, once again, I I connected to this natural characteristics of different uh, sources. So um, uh, those uh, uh, fine uh, commodities that are mentioned like silk worms in Italy, hemp in uh, Northern Russia. They um, were growing on huge um, uh, spaces. It's like, wherever you go across Northwestern Russia, you still you, you still have hemp and, uh, and rye. And uh, you don't really develop trade because it's available everywhere. Uh, you know, you, you have to carry this hemp, you know, across the uh, Arctic seas, say to England as it happened in the in, uh, in Middle Ages essentially. In order to 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 be able to 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 trade it for something else like metal goods or uh, or uh, luxury goods, so uh, oppressive regimes are, were created by uh, a different kind of raw materials that are kind of pointed, compact. They they. Uh, they either grow or could be extracted only in one particular place in the earth, such as, say, Sugar Islands in the Caribbean or this oil um, uh, areas in uh, the Northern Sea or in West Siberia. So then we have this, you know, really modern dynamics of huge, uh, very, very distant transportation, huge transportation costs, fights along this transportation ways, you know, these pirates, terrorists, rivals, ri- rival empires, colonies, and metropolitan areas. So, uh, uh, these structure materials do not produce this modern dynamic. But of course, uh, and it, that's fine. You know, that's, that's like a dream of an, this anarchic, communitarian societies that, you know, uh, that, that are basically sustainable and are based on subsistence. But of course, they do not develop. They don't produce a high civilization. We would, you know, we wouldn't have had our universities and books, or our Zoom meeting. If it, if you know, all this, uh, all, all that we would have had, were, were, were this dispersed uh, materials available everywhere where we go.
1: Well, but it sounds tempting, maybe, to just be a hemp farmer in northwestern Russia and not have to deal with all of the the uh, modern things of society and like the Zoom meeting. Um, yes, so so, um, I guess in 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 thinking about that in your example there of of hemp, how do you think being a historian of Russia in particular affected the way that you've told this story?
2: uh well a rule of thumb is of of course that the bigger is the country the the more it relies on natural natural materials that it has and so that that this dynamics of you know one there there is one thing in one place and you know all other things on all other places don't have this particular thing is kind of internalized within a national within national politics um what, what say say British empire had in its colonies the Russian empire had you know with, within the bodies of the state and my previous book uh, or one of them was called internal Colonization, Russia's imperial experience where, where i talked about this internal colon- colonies within the national uh, domain so that's uh, that's a very particular uh, look at, at things which uh, so, so I, I, w- I was more interested in this terrestrial um, dynamics terrestrial, tra- tra- terrestrial terrestrial state, terrestrial transportation, terrestrial resources rather than the overseas um, trade. Uh, I was more interested also in um, just in, 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 uh, in the global north than in global South and I think that's that this is something that we have in common, you know, this our Canadian listener, and uh, you, the the Norwegian organizers, and I'm the Russian historian. So the the, Global North is also, you know, hugely diverse diverse and full of interesting details. Though the um, Blue Water empires, uh, the British Empire, of course, and, and also now the you know many american uh, intellectuals and historians they, they really think about uh, the whole uh, the, 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 about, about about global issues and about political evil in terms of the south but sort of i i i make this point in my book about the north very specifically very em, em, emphatically
1: Gabriella had a question um, wondering if any particular kind of natural resource would be virtuous or gets less evil over time and an example here could potentially not necessarily but potentially be sugar um, in with the abolition of slavery and with the rise of the sugar beet in the 20th century, so that production systems change for where a great amount of the sugar that we consume is. So how do you see that?
2: Good question, Gabriela. I, I, actually, in my book, you will find a big section about sugar beet because that was really, a, 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 I would say, ge- geopolitical factor, the invention or selection of sugar beet. It was, of course, done not in the 20th century, but rather, the, rather in the 18th century. And it was still a kind of a legacy of alchemistry. The guy who actually, you know, first who first de- detected sugar in this modest beat was bit was an, a was a pharma, pharma, pharmacist, pharmacist, and alchemist in Berlin. Uh, but then, then what happened was that the the uh, uh, kings and princes of the uh, who were fighting the British Empire. Uh, they immediately realized that beet is the way to conquer the world, or at least to, the way to undermine the, the, the breeds. And Friedrich II supported this development of sugar beets and, uh, and uh, kind of paid for the experiments, and that, that was the selection of the beets with high and high concentration of sugar. And Napoleon created something like the Academy of, uh, of, of sugar, beer, sh- sh- sugar agron- ag- agronomics or something like that. So, so, so that was an Im- immediately this sort of alliance between uh, developments on the developments on below, say uh, the, the development of sugar beet and uh, this <laughs> Grand imperial and geopolitical issues uh, was immediately realized.
1: So, um, one of the questions here, um, with uh, I guess, was Vitalia also uh, coming back and saying, "So, would your argument change if you saw nature as inherently sacred or divine?" Rather than as evil, um, so that nature is those things, but then it's somehow polluted or converted. We might say to evil causes.
2: Nature, nature, of course, is sacred and divine and enormously rich, and we we depend on it fully. But but it is it is uneven. It is divine, but unevenly so. And in this unevenness is the root of human evil. So if, if we had, you know, all, all, all those things, uh, if we had everywhere like hemp in Northern Russia or apples in Ukraine, in Ukraine, or beavers in Canada before the French came there. So they were everywhere, no, no, nobody cared about them. You know, people, people used them. As much as they needed immediately, there was no trade, no economic development, no inequality. Uh, well, there was—I'm sure there was still violence, but not as much as as we see it.
1: Yeah, so I think it, it gets down, and, and Anna had mentioned this in her question to, in some ways, accidental forms of. Inequality so so those as you're saying it that beavers exist here or there, or that a coal seam is there or an oil. uh, field exists somewhere is accidental as far as humans go, but then, because of that accidentalness we build up our political structures in particular ways when there's trade. um, That makes those inequalities apparent
2: right exactly the nature in its divine ways it uh, uh situates this uh, say coal basins uh um the slaves of um geological uh, what is it materials they, they they go here and there and in some points they they get to the surface and uh, uh, this arrangement even though it, it is lawful and um, uh, follows some kind of natural uh, mechanisms, has really nothing to do with human interests. Uh, also, humans cannot really change it. Uh, humans fully dependent on the you know, sites where oil is or coal was or sugar was but they cannot change the climate. They cannot change those geological arrangements. They cannot get access to that. They can drill deeper and deeper mines, but then those mines would collapse at some point. So humans can only adjust to that, but also profit from that because the rarer, the more distant and the more labor intensive is this particular extraction, the more valuable is the material and the more profit it would make and then and the final account the more evil will follow
0: so building on that and i'm wondering how deterministic your argument really is i mean what you talk a bit about the agency of nature but what where's the agency of humans here are we you know if we were to run this in a simulator right you know thinking of of how history develops would this inevitably the case you know this this development of inequality uh, inequality, evil nature Mm
2: -hmm. well still you know without uh um, uh, oil oil was there it was not needed you know until until people developed uh, you know engines and uh, all that way and weapons and that that uh, work on oil, uh, and the same you could you could say about anything about gold and even about cereals probably. So um, these are humans who sort of approach nature in in various ways, and they kind of leap from one stage of their development to another stage, following the staple idea that every Change I call it the raw material platform. Uh, Ines call it staple. So that uh, every change, every leap from one platform to another entails a major crisis, a major sort of restructuration of everything. And of course, we, you know, reading newspapers every day. We right now we are kind of we 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 learn about you know how how it works.
1: So, what's on the horizon for you um, after finishing this book? Do you are you working on a on a new uh, project? Are you continuing to work on natural resources or delving deeper into something in particular that sparked your interest? Uh,
2: well, I, I I write one book every five years, so uh, I still have some time for sort of uh, for this sort of that's a kind of. Uh, Anxiety-ridden period, you know, of conceiving new ideas. But I, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really interested now in uh, the digital, uh, the digital sphere. So, so my my hope is to connect the digital, to include the digital into that paradigm of, of nature's evil. But how exactly I will do that, I hope that I will be able to tell you in five years from now.
1: Well, that's great. Look forward to it, especially (laughs) as our world has continued to move more and more digital um, to think about how that connects to resources. um, These things we call natural resources, but that, as you point out, require these systems to grow up and, and work and go all the way up to state levels and can be used in very unequal ways. Um, So I wanna thank Alexander Etkind, who's professor of history of Russia-Europe relations at the European University Institute for talking with us today about his book, Nature's Evil, A Cultural History of Natural Resources out with Wiley. Um, So thank you very much, Sasha.
2: Thank you for having me and and uh, uh, now I will be your your your, your guest uh, for every book talk